Hi, and welcome back, listeners, to our latest episode of the Room and Room Podcasts. Now, this is our 33rd episode now, and it's just but one of a series of podcasts brought to you by the Facebook group, The Room and Room, proudly supported by our loyal sponsors, PG Rights and Seeds. Look, if you haven't joined one of our podcasts before, by way of introduction, my name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a veterinarian and nutritionist based at Kimihia Research Centre in Lincoln, Canterbury, here in New Zealand. We are going to cover off the second part of a two-part series to do with the range of factors that influence the deposition of IMF, otherwise known as intramuscular fat, otherwise known as marbling in our finishing sheep and cattle. Now, not sure if you've listened to part one of this two-part series, but in episode 32, we did do a brief scene set around just what IMF is and why the consumers of our red meat products, whether that be domestic consumers here in New Zealand or those of you that may enjoy lamb or uh, beef uh, from New Zealand, essentially explaining why either we selfishly or the consumers of our red meat products like IMF and their meat, particularly steak, served up. Now, in that first episode, we covered off a broader discussion around some other things to do with fat depots in sheep and cattle, essentially how fat is deposited, and within that, how IMF fits in those broader topics around fat deposition. Now, also in that episode, we talked about how the order in which fat is deposited into different fat depots change as an animal ages and becomes heavier and that IMF is actually the last fat depot to be laid down as an animal is finishing. But unfortunately, how the IMF depot similarly is just as quick to be remobilised and lost if things come unstuck during the finishing process. And we are going to focus more on that aspect of it in this current episode. Just to uh, overview what we will be covering is we, uh, in this current episode, is we're going to focus on both uh, some animal factors, but also some nutritional factors that influence IMF deposition by finishing animals. And unashamedly, with our New Zealand-based focus, we will be looking for opportunities to improve IMF deposition for animals finished on our New Zealand pastures and forage crops. Right, assuming you've already listened to episode 32, that basic one, hopefully you'll recall that we covered off uh, some of those basics around IMF and indeed fat metabolism in general. So now, if you've listened uh, to that rather um, long explanation around fat deposition, hopefully now you can pause for breath with the current episode and focus uh, less on that heavy fat metabolism stuff and actually bring things very much back to life at an on-farm level, that things that can hopefully be relatable for you. So let's look at, firstly, the farm-level things that can influence IMF. And the, the key thing to acknowledge here that I know you'll be aware of is that, of course, IMF depositional presence within red meat is very much driven inside the farm gate. So not at processor level, but very much what we do on farm. Now, once animals leave the farm, there's nothing else that a processor can do to improve IMF. It's all very much about 
what we're up to inside the farm gate and opportunities to enhance IMF before the animals leave. So I guess on that note, what can we do at home inside the farm gate to improve the IMF content of red meat? Well, number one, and this is a really big number one factor underlining this point, is of course animal genetics and the capacity uh, of animals to deposit IMF. Now, IMF uh, depositional marbling capacity is heritable, which means, of course, that animal geneticists can and already have and are continuing to select for improved IMF deposition by our animals. You'll be no doubt uh, very familiar with those between breed differences in capacity to marble and, of course, our friend the infamous Wagyu breed of cattle who are renowned internationally and here in New Zealand for their capacity to deposit IMF, or in other words, to marble very effectively, which is great. Leaving Wagyu aside, even some of our more traditional breeds also have a good capacity for IMF deposition, provided, of course, all the management and feeding aspects around finishing is done well. But yeah, we can't beat the Wagyu and that genetic propensity to lay down IMF, but acknowledging that there have been really good advances made thanks to breeding uh, for deposition, for example, by uh, particularly our British breeds, I guess, early maturing Herefords and Angus. But Look, big shout out to uh, the animal geneticists and clever people that have made big advances in IMF deposition. The likes of being able to DNA sample and we've got EBVs, you know, for IMF percentages and whatnot to really give you a heads up advantage uh, on your journey to achieve better IMF in your finishing animals. So we're very much a nutritional podcast and, and what's the expression? Maybe it's a Kiwi expression. We're going to stick to our knitting, which just means we're going to leave the animal genetics topics alone for the experts. And uh, well, that's a very big topic on its own anyway. And we'll stick very much to our focus on nutrition, given that is what our podcast is about. Yes, nutrition is part of it. But aside from animal genetics, there are, of course, other animal-specific factors that impact on the ability uh, of an animal to deposit IMF, uh, intramuscular fat, or in other words, to marble. So in previous podcasts, look, we did touch briefly on the importance of the age of animals, but just to recap that, if you haven't listened to episode 32, number one in this series, it's very much to do with the age of the animals. Now, Cute as they are, we look at young lambs and young calves, and they are, of course, those geeky, leggy, gangly teenagers of the ruminant world, and very much so about that they are in the process of laying down a lot of muscle and, and of course, growing their skeletons. So our gangly, leggy lambs and calves will have close to zero IMF, intramuscular fat, present That said, they will, on the other hand, have potentially a lot of the individual IMF fat cells sitting there, ready to go, and to start to, those cells to start to increase in size as they are older and finishing. All of the feed that they are eating currently as uh, leggy teenage ruminants is very much for the more important things about growing muscle and bone, and starting off, of course, by laying down the protective and energy reserve fat depots of visceral or internal fat 
and the subcut fat as they start to age. Now, in terms of the effect of age, that is very much breed-dependent because we have animals that mature at an earlier age, that their maturity is reached at a younger age, a lighter life weight, for example, our British breeds, Angus and Herefords. And also that deposition of IMF based on age is driven by the current life weight of that animal as a percentage of its mature weight. So just to lean into this topic around their current life weight as a percentage of final mature weight, what we mean by that is typically when an animal's current live weight is at a low percentage of mature weight, then they won't be depositing IMF. So let's say, for example, using cattle uh, as an example. Now, if that potential mature weight of that animal is, let's say, 700 kilos, it's a steer, and currently the young steer is only 200 kilograms live weight, you know, perhaps um, heading into, as an, a rising one-year-old heading into its first winter, we describe that as a way of saying it's only 29% of its mature weight. So it's very unlikely that there's much in the way of IMF deposition starting to happen yet. Yes, it's likely it will have IMF fat cells sitting there, but those cells are kind of empty, if you'd like. They're like a, a deflated balloon. They haven't filled up with fat yet. However, as that younger steer starts to age and he starts to gain weight and to approach his mature weight, perhaps as a two or, or even an R3, he's starting, he's he's managed to get to, let's say, 550 kilograms. Then if we calculate 550 as a percentage of 700, he's like closer to 80% of mature weight. So it's more likely that those little intramuscular fat cells, those deflated balloons are actually starting to fill up with fat because he's already laid down his visceral fat, he's already laid down his back fat, he's already laid down his intermuscular fat, and now he's in that stage of starting to lay down IMF, intramuscular fat. So there's not a magical threshold at what stage IMF deposition really starts to work really, really well. Typically once a steer or a heifer gets closer and closer to its mature weight, there's going to be a much greater likelihood of it starting to lay down IMF. But of course, that depends very much on the type of feed it's eating, the environment, the freedom from stress, freedom from ill health, and some of the management factors around us, how it's spending its time. So there's lots of other factors in play that we're going to talk about shortly. But yeah, it is very much a percent, the current live weight is a percent of its mature weight that's an important driver of IMF deposition. Just before we leave behind this topic of current weight as a percentage of mature weight, this is, of course, where the whole issue of more IMF as a desirable trait starts to get on, I guess, what we could call a, a potential collision course around some of the profitability of finishing our lambs or our cattle, especially when we're starting to reach higher weights expressed as a percentage of mature weight. Now, this is all to do with feed conversion efficiency, where we define feed conversion efficiency as the kilograms of dry matter of feed required to encourage an animal to lay down one kilogram of live weight. Now, this changes from a high feed conversion efficiency for a young animal through to a relatively poor feed conversion efficiency for a heavier animal. Now, if we start first with our very young animals, let's perhaps 
bring back that 200 kilogram steer that we discussed as an example beforehand. Now, at that age and weight, he's actually quite an effective converter of feed to kilograms of live weight gain. Why is he so effective? Well, let's explain that by looking at the different amounts of energy that we need to lay down a kilogram of muscle in a young animal compared to the amount of energy needed to lay down a kilogram of fat. Now, it's all to do with the chemical makeup of muscle. Now, muscle is made up in very broad terms. This is this is very gumboot level. Very broad terms. It's made up um, on a wet weight basis of around about 20% protein. So this is muscle, 20% protein with the balance as water. So when we look at a kilogram of muscle that's been laid down in a young animal, that means that energetically it's super efficient because you're laying down protein, but you're getting like free 80% of water being laid down as well. So that's super energy efficient for a young animal, and that's great. On the other hand, let's look again at our example 550 kilo steer, um, who is going to be laying down predominantly fat. He will be turning over his muscle tissue and doing a few other things, but let's keep it relatively simple and say if every kilo he's laying down is pretty well just fat, he's no longer efficient from a feed conversion efficiency point of view at fattening compared to when he was only 200 kilos live weight. When he's genuinely fattening, that fat tissue on on a wet weight basis is composed of about 80% fat and just 20% water. Now remember, the opposite was true for muscle. Muscle contained about 20% protein and 80% water. That's 80% free water, not costing anything energetically. And the opposite is true for fat. Only 20% of that is water, so yeah, we've got 80% fat. So that's why it's energetically really inefficient to lay down a kilo of fat when the animal is much higher as a percentage of mature weight compared to when he's younger as a percentage of mature weight. So, yeah, we need overall more megajoules of metabolizable energy and more kilograms of dry matter eaten for every kilogram of live weight gain when they're fattening than the amount of megajoules of ME or kilograms of dry matter that we need to lay down a kilogram of muscle a young animal. Now, where the hell uh, are we going with this? You're probably saying, come on, weren't we talking about IMF? Well, yes, we are, but we explained that we've actually got a collision between a desire to have an animal sticking around on farm, fattening furiously to chase a premium for IMF, at the same time that it's getting every day energetically more costly to have an animal gaining weight. So essentially, When we have very heavy, genuinely fattening animals on farm that are likely to be depositing IMF and and achieving marbling grades that we want, just be aware that these heavy animals are actually inefficient as feed converters and can be very costly on farm when we're chasing higher IMF grades if they are eating a huge amount of feed for every kilogram of live weight. So essentially, I guess what we're saying is we need to have a good premium price that we are receiving for higher IMF grades or percent IMF um, on that meat to justify keeping them on farm for relatively longer periods of time to chase those higher IMF scores. That's sort of like a a whole farm modelling discussion will be on the scope of what we're saying, but essentially summing up a young growing animal 
put a number on it. Every kilogram of live weight gain over and above basic maintenance costs might cost you 30 ME, uh, megajoules of ME, so not much. And on the other hand, when we've got a fully mature fattening animal, that same one kilo of live weight may need uh, 60, 65 or even 70 megajoules for every kilogram of live weight over and above maintenance, given that, that uh, every kilo of a fat animal is being deposited as energetically expensive fat. IMF is very good, but we do need now and in the future to be appropriately, what would we say, uh, rewarded by our processes for chasing those high IMF that their consumers want. Back to the animal the animal itself. Now, what is the effect of the sex of an animal on IMF deposition or marbling? Well, overall, let's use the beef industry uh, as an example that's been well reported. It's generally accepted that our friends, our little heifers, they will marble on average better than steers and, in turn, steers will marble or deposit IMF better than entire bull, so bull beef. Now, first let's focus on, on our wee heifers. There's a couple of theories around the heifer effect, but both of them are based on what the effects are of the female sex hormone or oestrogen. And why might oestrogen favour the deposition of fat or intramuscular fat once heifers reach and move through puberty and ultimately start to finish? There's a couple of reasons here. First is that it's thought that the presence of oestrogen in our heifers may be involved in reduced mobilisation of IMF in muscle through the reduced expression of an enzyme that's specifically involved in mobilising IMF fat. So maybe oestrogen acts in a protective way to reduce the risk of IMF mobilisation, but don't entirely know. The other factor is more to do with the actual deposition of fat, and it seems that oestrogen favours the deposition of IMF once heifers are in that fattening phase, so it's actually pro-fat deposition. On the other hand, steers don't have oestrogen, clearly, so they do deposit IMF, but maybe not as efficiently or effectively compared with heifers. However, of course, let's keep things basic and very much on track, is that, of course, steers do yield better than heifers, so there is that advantage for steers, just in terms of uh, kilograms of uh, red meat yielded per hectare uh, versus heifers. So pros and cons both side of it, but yeah, heifers do ha seem to have a, a genuine effect of oestrogen. And what about our friends, the bull beef? Um, so you might have Frisian bulls, you might have genuine bull beef um, that you haven't steered. How come they don't accumulate much in the way of IMF, apart from the fact they're stomping around, digging holes and lifting gates uh, and all those sorts of things, apart from being the bad boys? Simply, it is the effect of sex hormones again, but in this sense with bulls, it's to do with the anabolic sex hormones specifically, but not limited to testosterone. Now, what testosterone does, what does two things to IMF, or the ability to deposit IMF. One is that the anabolic sex hormone testosterone restricts the increase in the numbers or hyperplasia, the numbers of IMF cells that are formed in the finishing animal, particularly younger animals. 
but also the testosterone works against, even if there are IMF cells present, you know, those deflated balloons, the testosterone works against those deflated balloon cells, the, the fat cells increasing in size or depositing fat, otherwise known as, as hypertrophy, so increase in the size of fat cells and, and increasing balloons. So overall, long story short, I guess that's why bull beef ends up on a box and not prime, and it certainly uh, does work against IMF accumulating in the presence of testosterone. So, yeah, we do need to target um, prime cattle for IMF. Get some other guru in the livestock world to come and talk to us more about that. We'll, we'll stick very much to the nutrition. So anyway, that's some brief aspects around the animal effect, um, but acknowledging animal genetics is a huge, powerful part of uh, improved IMF deposition. Let's now move on to the last topic of this particular podcast, which is very much around the effects of nutrition on IMF depositional marbling. So I guess the first place where nutrition plays a role in impacting ultimately the IMF deposition on finishing lambs or, or cattle is we need to first talk about maternal nutrition. So that's the nutrition uh, of the ewe or the cow when the unborn lamb or calf are still inside mum's tum. Now, this can potentially affect the future IMF deposition capacity or the marbling capacity of that yet unborn calf or lamb inside the ewe or the cow. So it seems that the nutritional status of mum, so that's the ewe or the cow, can through a process of epigenetic modification, influence the future expression of IMF in that as yet unborn progeny. Now for cattle, it seems that it's during the last trimester of the pregnancy inside the cow uh, that a higher plane of nutrition for the cow during that last trimester, specifically from day 180 onwards through to perhaps, uh, you know, 282, 285, full-term full pregnancy, can actually influence the IMF propensity uh, for deposition once that calf is finishing as a finished beef animal. So in conjunction with um, day 180 of pregnancy through to that calf is born, there's also a period of life of that very young animal from birth perhaps through to 250 days of age, or even a bit longer. Collectively, day 180 of pregnancy through to birth and then birth through to day 250 of age or even a bit longer, this has been loosely called the marbling window. I quite like that as a term, it's a, it's a bit mysterious. But essentially it's a period of time where firstly maternal nutrition, so that's mum's nutrition, and then the nutrition of that young animal can influence future IMF performance once that animal is fattening or finishing. So what's happening? Well, for myself as a veterinary nutritionist, it's a long and complicated process that's well beyond my level of full understanding, and I'm sure there may be cleverer people listening that could explain it better. But if we keep it at the boots-on level, but essentially it seems that during that, the latter stages of gestation and in the young, young animal, there are what are called stem cells present that have not yet decided what they're going to evolve themselves into. And these little stem cells are still making their mind up about whether they're going to evolve into little muscle cells, or instead they're going to evolve into connective tissue cells, 
or in fact they might actually evolve into fat cells. Hmm, so they might end up as IMF cells. Now it seems that if from a nutritional and management point of view, if life is good for the pregnant cow and then is also as good for the young rapidly growing calf, perhaps running at foot with mum, that if the nutritional status of mum and then the young calf is really, really good, that those stem cells seem to think that it's actually a rather good idea to turn themselves into more IMF fat cells. So that's where that term hyperplasia or increase in number of cells is happening. And because those stem cells are turning into fat cells, they're not going to turn into this um, connective tissue cells, which isn't ideal if you're not into a chewy steak. So I guess the take home here is that in a holistic sense, of course, if you're looking at things to improve your system, and in this case, improve feeding of third trimester, cows might improve lactational performance, might improve cow condition at calving, which might improve reproductive success. So feeding a third trimester pregnancy cows, well, might have other benefits, but certainly there is some suggestion that it will also encourage the stem cells inside the calf, inside mum's tongue, to turn into fat cells and not connective tissue cells or muscle cells. As well, once the calf is born and it running at foot with mum through until weaning, so if we're still talking about a later weaning, sort of eight months of age or something, this could also be valuable for a whole range of reasons to improve the nutrition. You're going to end up with better lactation from the cow, better growing weaner. Uh, that weaner's a lot more forward heading into its first winter. So all a range of factors that are discussion topic another day. But specifically from an IMF cellular point of view, it seems that that young animal that's growing well at, at, at foot with mum could actually end up being a better proposition for IMF deposition when that weaner comes to be finished. So that's enough about the marbling window. We're aiming to increase the number of uh, IMF fat cells, hyperplasia, and we also want those little cells that are like little unfilled balloons to fill up with more fat, hypertrophy, and that's more likely to happen if the calf is well grown heading into that weaning stage. Let's leave that magical marbling window behind and talk about marbling or IMF deposition once our animals have reached that finishing phase. Well, look, to be honest, in very simplistic terms, it's all about feeding an animal really, really well on high-quality feeds. The theory to feeding animals very well on high-quality feeds in a, a general sense is that we want our animals to consistently have high levels of blood glucose because high blood glucose levels are linked into improved IMF deposition. So in other words, potentially a few more fat cells, IMF fat cells, but most importantly for those ones to inflate the balloon and fill up with fat. There's a little bit of biochemistry and you can skip over this part or, or hang in there or look the other, just <laughs> chewed out, but a quick biochemistry discussion here around IMF fat deposition. <sighs> now this gets a bit boring, but hang in there. So fat, another word for fat is triglycerides. Now what triglycerides are is a combination of fatty acids and a backbone structure called glycerol. Hang in there with me. Now cricket fans, you can relate to this. Think of the cricket wicket itself. Now we've obviously got three stumps, right, stuck in the ground and then we've got the bales across the top. So the structure of triglycerides are made up of a cricket wicket where the stumps three, so that's tri, there's three of them, fatty acids attached 
to the backbone, which is glycerol, which is the bales or the top of the cricket wicket. So that's the structure of fats. Now, the reason I'm going into this, yes, you're probably bored out of your mind, but hang in there, is that when an animal starts to lay down intramuscular fat, it needs blood glucose first to make glycerol, which is the bales on the top of your cricket wicket. So that's the backbone of fat deposition. So that's the number one requirement for why we need lots of blood glucose from good feeding levels when we're finishing animals to lay down IMF. Then we've got the stumps of the cricket wicket, so that's fatty acids. And how the animal makes those fatty acids is in, uh, done in one of two different ways. First up, the fat cells, both IMF fat cells, but also subcut fat in some of the other depots, they actually use the short-chain volatile fatty acids or fatty acids that come from the rumen, from the digestion of fibre, to manufacture long-chain fatty acids. So if you're interested in more about volatile fatty acids from the rumen contributing to fat deposition, we do talk about that in episodes number two and number three of the rumen room. So yeah, go back and have a listen if you want to learn about that. But Essentially, short-chain volatile fatty acids or VFAs from the rumen are used by fat cells to make fatty acids, to make the stumps of the cricket wicket. Now, the other way that fat cells can make, can take ingredients to make long-chain fatty acids is using blood glucose to make the fatty acids or the wicket stumps. The reason we're going into this is because this is where fat cells actually get quite interesting, and particularly our IMF fat cells. So... IMF fat cells love to make their fatty acids, they prefer to make their fatty acids out of blood glucose and not so much out of the VFAs that come from the rumen. On the other hand, our friends, the subcutaneous or back fat cells and the internal fat cells aren't that fussed about glucose, instead they prefer the volatile fatty acids that come from the rumen for their favourite ingredients to make their cricket wicket stumps, uh, in other words their long chain fatty acids. So you can see where we're leaning with this is that hopefully if you've, <laughs> you've managed to hang in there with this, but essentially when we feed animals really, really well, and especially when we feed starch, we're going to talk a bit more about starch and feedlotting in a, in a minute, but when we really pump up blood glucose levels, that actually favours more IMF fat deposition, even though the, the back fat cells can also use glucose if they need to, but they actually prefer the volatile fatty acids. So more blood glucose, we get glycerol for the bales on the top of the cricket wicket, and we get the IMF long-chain fatty acids that make IMF fat so good. So long story short, the best thing we can do from a nutritional point of view is really pump these animals well on very high-quality feeds and that will um, increase the, the manufacture by the IMF fat cells to make lots and lots of fat to fill up the deflated balloon with lots of fat. Now, as well as glucose being used as a key ingredient to make those long-chain fatty acids and also the glycerol, is that we also think that glucose drives up insulin levels, just as when we eat too much and we have high blood glucose levels, we have high insulin. Now, that's what happens in, in finishing animals as well. And in the presence of higher levels of insulin, that can also increase the uptake of glucose to be used by those busy little fat cells, particularly the IMF ones, which we're most interested in. Long story short, we feed animals really well with high quality feeds that favours high blood glucose, and we're more likely to achieve higher IMF deposition than if blood glucose levels are lower 
on poor quality feeds that results in animals not growing as fast. Now, if we look first at feedlotting, hopefully this high blood glucose driver of IMF starts to explain why feedlotters set up with high grain diets for finishing cattle, particularly depending on the feedlot and where they're located. And, and obviously we're pretty limited with feedlotting here in New Zealand, but obviously looking to Australia, I suppose, is our nearest neighbours, our cousins. A lot of processed cereal grains are fed, particularly maize or corn, as, as very energy-dense sources of starch and a bit of oil as well, but also barley and um, certainly where areas support it, steam-flaked sorghum as examples. So essentially these diets are formulated to contain a lot of starch. They're very energy-dense, but specifically what, what where the starch is going to support IMF and finishing cattle is that firstly at the level of the rumen our starchy diets support more of one specific type of rumen volatile fatty acids or VFA and that's the one called propionate. Now propionate as a VFA leaves the rumen, goes to the liver and in the liver it's used to manufacture, yep you guessed it, Blood glucose. Hmm, this is hopefully starting to make a, a bit of sense because high blood glucose favours IMF. Now, as well as that, in these feedlotting systems, quite often we'll get some starch that actually isn't broken down in the rumen and actually is what we call um, rumen escape starch or it leaves the rumen where at the level of the small intestine it's actually broken down directly to blood glucose just as the same way that we that don't have rumens that's how we digest our starch so it's sort of like a second way that starch can contribute to holding up good high levels of blood glucose that are then available to many body tissues but specifically to those IMF fat cells to manufacture both the glycerol and the long-chain fatty acid components of those cricket wicket triglycerides. So for sure, feedlotting uh, with high-starch diets makes it easier to, to really reach some of those higher marbling scores or higher IMF um, percentages. And it's not only from the starch, but also because every day is largely the same for feedlot cattle and that the diet being fed as a total mixed ration uh, is, is tightly controlled in terms of variation from day to day compared to diets where we're, we're expecting cattle to graze pasture and or forage crops. So yeah, so <laughs> we need to remember that this New Zealand-focused Room and Root podcast is very much about those grazed pastures and forage crops and not so much about the feedlot systems. So this is where we have to try and innovate and think, how are we going to actually try and maintain higher levels of blood glucose? Not so much the levels, but just that turnover of glucose so that we can really make sure that animals never go without blood glucose so they're never going to hopefully um, end up inadvertently mobilising IMF instead of depositing it. Our temperate forages uh, on which our pastures and, and also our temperate forage crops are largely based, we don't have a lot of access to starchy feeds where we have um, grasses, legumes and our forage crops. To be fair, our temperate legumes, so that might be uh, lucerne and uh, red and white clovers, those do contain some starches, but we're talking about maybe 5 to 6% starch on a dry matter basis compared to some of our very ambitious feedlotting uh, rations that may be designed to carry 60 or even 70% or more starch on a dry matter basis. So we're not even on the same page. 
So look, to be honest, the best and most practical way to encourage finishing animals, whether that be lambs or cattle, to to deposit, um, to lay down more IMF, is simply to feed them very well on very high quality forages so that those finishing animals are eating amounts and quality of feed that is well above maintenance. And essentially the higher the blood glucose, the the better the IMF deposition provided a lot of the other factors we've talked about over this and the previous podcast are going to be supportive of IMF deposition. So it's not as tidy as feedlotting uh, without that starch to drive things, but we still can attain some very useful IMF levels, even on forage-fed animals, particularly where we're promoting grass and forage-fed finishing systems that are very desirable to many of our consumers of New Zealand-produced red meat. So coming back to these forages, what are some of the key practical ways that we can keep driving blood glucose levels up so we've got a high turnover of glucose? Even if blood glucose levels don't physically lift, we've got a high turnover of blood glucose entering the various animal cells, including IMF fat cells. Well, look, first up is about getting more feed into these finishing animals, and <laughs> that, like so many of our podcasts, comes back first and foremost to the feed budget. Now, feed budgeting, a very boring but necessity, I suppose, for finishing systems, and that means being conservative with your feed budgeting, and that means leaving a fair bit of flex in your feed budget so that if we have issues around feed supply, or certainly supply of the high-quality feeds that we need for finishing on, if, for example, we have weather events <laughs> that don't come to the party, we have drought or we have um, some of some of the increasingly frequent storm events and cyclone events that have been giving New Zealand a hard time over recent seasons. If we can't continue under those conditions to fully feed our finishing animals with very high quality feeds, we will impact on IMF depositions. So anything that contributes to our finishing animals taking a check, well, what I mean by a check is that they stall in terms of live weight gain or heaven forbid, go backwards for a period of time, remembering that whilst IMF uh, fat is the last to be deposited after the visceral internal fat and then the subcut and then the intermuscular fat, that it's the last one to be deposited. When the going gets tough and an animal checks or or, um, starts to lose a bit of weight, the IMF is the first to be mobilised and to be lost. So any system, any finishing system, where you are very keen to obtain premiums around uh, improved or higher IMF percentages in the finished animal, we must not allow our finishing animals to take a hard check or they'll mobilise out that desirable IMF. So your feed budget needs to be constructed that perhaps you either at a lower stocking rate or you have fewer finishing animals but you've got other capital stock classes at stages of their production system where they can do some clean-up duty. Or you may have bull beef that, yes, you're still wanting to finish those, but because we're not chasing IMF with those from time to time, they can be used to clean up a bit harder. Perhaps breeding cows at non-critical stages of the breeding cycle, you can use her to clean up more. But whatever approach you take to it, we can't allow our finishing animals to check Now, other factors that enable animals to express that ability to deposit IMF are, of course, all of those other basic factors that we know you're already going to be all over. 
as in we need animals that are um, strong, um, healthy, well-grown animals that have got a really good frame on them uh, to hang a, a good carcass and a big gut with a, you know, that they can have an awesome appetite to put away a lot of feed in a short period of time. Uh, these animals, we can't allow them to be unwell for any other reason apart from the basic welfare requirements of looking after and loving our animals well um, that would otherwise impact on their ability to eat very well. But that's, that's a basic, it's a given, of course. Now, we need sufficient quantities of high-quality feed on offer so that animals, uh, for every bite that they take, every mouthful contains a lot of feed, a lot more grams of dry matter per bite, so that we can maximise their daily dry matter intake that they're consuming. So for pasture-fed animals, that means leaving behind sensible post-grazing residuals behind them with rotational grazing, and potentially cleaning up with another stock class behind them, perhaps some some cattle that uh, uh, you're not chasing those higher live weight gains perhaps in, in terms of flattening out your flow out um, of finishing cattle over a longer period of time. That leader follower system can certainly favour more IMF if the, the, um, the leaders aren't chewing down as hard. In the case of forage crops, so you may be finishing forage crop and those animals are leaving the farm straight off the forage crop. In that situation, it may be that you're not chasing uh, or making those animals eat 100% of that forage crop instead leaving a residual behind that has been uh, cleaned up by another animal. That's another way to drive intake and therefore blood glucose. Now the forage, whether that be pasture or forage crop, it needs to be presented to our grazing animals in a very easy to harvest. So in other words, easy for them to wrap their tongues around, to chew, to eat and then to swallow, so it's rapidly chewed and swallowed and broken down in the rumen, uh, and that applies equally to either well-managed, good quality pasture or to forage crops. Now one interesting thing about very high quality forages, the irony is with the good quality forages, of course we must be careful to uh, avoid any issues around clinical or subclinical rumen acidosis, and this is cattle particularly, but the irony is, is that where very high quality feeds have actually dropped the rumen pH a little bit down, not to the point, not below 5.5 at which we'd categorise that as subacute rumen lacidosis or SARA from a feed conversion efficiency point of view, but also from an IMF deposition point of view, a slightly lower than normal rumen pH tends to favour the, the types of uh, rumen microbes that prefer to produce propionate. Now that's a VFA that favours more blood glucose. So within reason, no issues around subacute rumen acidosis or clinical acidosis, these high quality forages may actually be favouring more propionate and that in turn may be favouring uh, more glucose. And certainly in the case of crops, so that might be bulb crops, perhaps swede or fodder beet, that may be part of where not only feed conversion efficiency is coming from, uh, but also higher blood, uh, blood glucose levels. So that's probably enough about getting an animal to eat more. 
that's sort of very much dry matter driven and the type of feed that hopefully drives high levels of blood glucose. And, and we'll come back to that, how what that means for lambs finishing on chicory and maybe chicory clover mixes, but hold that thought. So I suppose illustrating this issue around more proprionate and, and different forages, let's look more into detail where it's been more acknowledged um, than beef is certainly in the lamb finishing space. And you're probably all aware that there's good work that's been done and continues to grow around not only targeting higher IMF and finishing lambs on chicory and chicory clover blends, but also targeting higher levels of omega-3 polyunsaturated long-chain fatty acids. Now, we'll leave omega-3, that's potentially another podcast another day, but essentially work where lambs have been finished on temperate forage, specifically chicory and clover. It seems from the chicory point of view particularly that chicory finishing of lambs does support potentially improved IMF deposition in lambs as well as also favouring a higher proportion of fatty acids present as omega-3 fatty acids compared to, say, a poor quality pasture. Chicory is, as far as trying to reach into the black box around what is chicory doing to support not only more omega-3 fatty acids, but also more IMF, we need to tinker around inside that black box and try and connect the dots a wee bit about what might be happening. Now, certainly the omega-3 fatty acid story is relatively easy to explain because chicory is a very rich source of a specific fatty acid that's like a precursor, a building block for omega-3 fatty acids. And this is specifically called alpha-linolenic acid, or ALA. And chicory's got a lot of ALA in it, and that's why lambs that eat chicory have got an ingredient for manufacturing lots of omega-3 fatty acids. And that's combined with a very rapid rumen outflow rate that stops a lot of those um, alpha-linolenic acid fatty acids getting broken down in the rumen. So it's a story another day. But on the IMF front, it's a little harder to tinker in the black box and understand why chicory is promoting more IMF and chicory-finished lambs, chicory-clover mixes. So when I suppose when you look at the rumen volatile fatty acid profile of lambs eating chicory, and you'd think in theory maybe there's more propionate relative to acetate and butyrate, and that's favouring more IMF and, and therefore more blood glucose is driving that IMF deposition. But bizarrely, work that's been done um, on the volatile fatty acid composition of lambs eating chicory is that actually they, they don't actually get more propionate. If anything, they get more acetate relative to propionate. So damn it, there goes that um, black box theory. So that doesn't explain that. Perhaps in a more simplistic sense, the magic, if you'd like, of chicory promoting more uh, intramuscular fat is simply to do with the very rapid rate of breakdown of the chicory plant inside the rumen, or even it starts to break down quickly while the lamb's chewing the chicory before the chicory even drops into the rumen. And that rapid rate of breakdown of chicory in the rumen probably supports very high dry matter intakes compared to intakes of dry matter by pasture-fed lambs. And maybe the higher intake of feed uh, for chicory-fed lambs promotes overall a greater yield of all volatile fatty acids in the rumen, including but not limited to propionate. But hey, like any black box theories, it doesn't, doesn't really matter, I suppose, because we do know time and time again that lambs that are finished on chicory do seem capable of uh, some, some really nice lifts in IMF as well as uh, more omega-3s. 
provided, of course, that the lambs have the appropriate animal genetic background to yield more IMF. Around that IMF story with lambs, certainly that system seems to work really, really well when lambs are finished probably between the last 30 to 60 days on a chicory and chicory clover-based system. So we haven't talked much about in either of these podcasts around IMF is about time that animals need to spend on uh, finishing feeds. And I mean, we'll have anything in feedlots that might be finishing for 70 to 100 days. Uh, and obviously time spent on finishing feeds how long is good enough? Well, it's how long is a piece of string? It depends. And on average, the longer that you can finish animals on uh, finishing feed, the better the IMF. But that length of time on feeds is very much around that feed conversion efficiency discussion and the cost of your finishing feeds and just what premiums that you're receiving for higher IMF for longer periods of time on feed. But Certainly lambs on chicory-based swords with chicory and chicory and clovers looks around that sort of 30 to 60 days. Back to a final word around IMF deposition and nutrition for forage-fed animals in New Zealand. I guess again we look overseas to work done internationally around some of the smaller nutrients in the diet, so that be micronutrients, trace minerals and vitamins. Now, I suppose we start with vitamins and most of the work that's been done is around vitamin A, vitamin D and vitamin C. Some of the theory around these vitamins and their association with IMF deposition is very much to do with restricting vitamins in the case of vitamin A and vitamin D. So restricting levels of those two vitamins can potentially enhance IMF deposition which is pretty bizarre. It's not often that you actually get a better outcome from feeding less of something. Now, in terms of relevancy for us here in New Zealand, not particularly relevant. Specifically, let's look at vitamin A first. Now, vitamin A, it's very hard to restrict vitamin A when we've got a lot of the precursor of vitamin A, which is called beta-carotene, that is broken down to vitamin A. So, we can't really restrict vitamin A uh, when there's a lot of green forage going into the system. So we, we don't have that opportunity to restrict that to promote IMF, certainly not readily anyway. Similarly, uh, a vitamin D restriction is very hard to do where our animals, our grazing animals on pastures and forage crops, they're all outdoors in the sunlight. Now, in the presence of sunlight, Vitamin D is not a limiting nutrient and it's very difficult without housing animals to restrict vitamin D. So vitamin D when animals are in sunlight during the finishing period is hard to do that as a management approach to enhancing IMF deposition. Now vitamin C is an interesting one. And in the case of vitamin C, increasing supply of vitamin C to ruminant animals has been suggested as a way to improve IMF deposition. So that's a bit of a trick one um, in that ruminants actually, unlike us humans, where we need our vitamin C tablets midwinter to um, you know, keep our vitamin C status sorted, like our ruminant species are very clever in that they do manufacture their very own vitamin C uh, in their liver based on glucose as, as the source of what they need to make vitamin C. In theory, our ruminants here in New Zealand have a lot of uh, vitamin C, but maybe in the future we always keep an open mind of these things. Maybe we'll see a rumen-protected source of vitamin C that at some stage might form part of a strategy to improve IMF in our grazing animals. 
finishing up on trace minerals um, for us here in New Zealand uh, in terms of animal well-being, keeping them good from a health point of view and a feed conversion point of view. We do need to watch the selenium status of, of our young animals, our finishing animals, particularly in our lambs. And also, while we're on the topic of lambs uh, finishing, we do need to watch their, their cobalt intakes and therefore their vitamin B12 status. And vitamin B12 is very important for converting propionate into glucose. So I've not seen any data supporting vitamin B12 and IMF fat deposition, but I guess for propionate metabolism, it's a given we, we need that for our young lambs. Here in New Zealand, where we do have areas in New Zealand that are very deficient in cobalt, specifically for finishing cattle, but particularly when they're younger and they're growing, copper uh, status will be very important. But we will do selenium, B12 and, and copper as separate topics at a later stage with our Room and Room podcast topics. So watch out for those. We, we will get around to recording some of those. But look, in the meantime, on the topic of Room and Room podcasts, we've now reached the end of another podcast that's been done and dusted. So just to wrap up and I guess summarise briefly what we have covered in this episode, you'll recall that we touched briefly on some of the animal topics that influence IMF deposition and of course the big ticket item for the animal side of uh, IMF deposition or marbling is very, very much the animal genetics side of things and we've chosen to leave the animal genetics well alone. We, we stick with the topics that, that are uh, uh, come more readily to us in, in the area of animal health and nutrition and not so much genetics, but we do respectively acknowledge um, that the heritability of IMF is there for the taking, which means animal genetics and selection for high IMF are very much the cornerstone of any farm level strategy to improve IMF and your finishing animals. So look, leaving genetics well alone, the animal genetics, we then moved on to animal factors that influence uh, IMF in your finishing animals at your place mainly to do with the age of an animal, stage of maturity, and or another way of expressing that's the current live weight of your finishing animals as a percentage of the mature weight. As well, we acknowledge the sex effect that contributes to IMF deposition in terms of heifer versus steer versus bull and the cattle side of things. And then we moved on to finally the true effects of nutrition on IMF deposition. And you'll recall that it's very much to do with a heap of um, glucose availability to those IMF fat cells. And that's driven by blood glucose, not necessarily by absolute blood glucose level with the blood test, but rather the turnover of glucose with lots of glucose pouring into those IMF fat cells so that they can make those triglycerides, the cricket wickets made up of glycerol uh, and long chain fatty acids. Then a bit of discussion around chicory from the lamb finishing side of things, and chicory is but one forage type that's already been proven to successfully improve IMF deposition, but as well as those very healthy omega-3 fatty acids, which are good for us humans from a health point of view. Ultimately, in our forage-based systems where we're not feedlotting, feeding animals well above maintenance on high-quality forages is probably the main tool in the toolkit to favour IMF deposition, provided, of course, that our animal, particularly our animal genetics, but animal effects, including animal age, and, of course, management factors are all aligning to support our nutritional strategies uh, to deposit IMF. And acknowledging very much so about chasing IMF in fattening animals that are closer or even reach maturity 
and some of the feed conversion efficiency discussions we need to have because uh, fattened animals that have reached maturity are very inefficient at gaining weight because they're depositing largely fat and not muscle tissue that of course has got that free water coming in for the ride and therefore in young animals why they are very efficient at converting feed to live weight gain. We are finished. Go back to part one if you didn't tune into part one of his two-part IMF series. But in the meantime, just like to say as always, thanks heaps for joining us once again. We love the fact that so many of you are downloading our podcasts and listening in and contacting us here at PGG Rights and Seeds with suggestions around topics for future podcasts. We love hearing from you and we love the fact that you're supporting us with a lot of downloads. Great to have you with us. Until you uh, join us again with the next podcast, in the meantime, look after yourselves, enjoy yourselves out and about, whatever you're up to. Uh, On behalf of myself, Charlotte Westwood, and our sponsors, PGG Rights and Seeds, we hope that you have an awesome day, whatever you're out and about doing. Catch you soon. Cheers. Cheers.